So I'm going to ask you to open to Romans 14 again this morning, as advertised. And I will read this morning um, the same passage we read last week with a few more verses. I've decided to read up to verse 16. So the first 16 verses of Romans 14, which is the great application of how we treat one another. Of course, verse, chapter 13 was how we treat one another outside the church, governments and those in authority. And 14 is how we treat one another inside the church. Very essential teaching from the Apostle Paul this morning. And so he writes, Receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you? To judge another servant. To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let us each be fully convinced, or rather, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Hallelujah. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Father, in Jesus' name, we need a special level of understanding. This is the application of your word to your people. And it is so far from our nature, O oh Lord, we ask you to revive in us the new nature that we have in Christ and let these words nourish our souls and improve the relationships of one Christian to the other in the house of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not really complicated, 
but it's a little foreign to the way people actually live. But I think we can see the logic in it, and Paul is really driving the point home, and he's quite repetitive. So he's going to start with verse 5, where he says, One person esteems one day above another, and another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. There's a very eclectic church here in Rome. This is a great metropolitan center of the ancient world. It is like many of the great cities today. This, it's very diverse. There are people from many different religions, many different um, ethnic backgrounds, many different languages and cultures, but they all hear the same gospel and come to Christ, and they are not all required to jettison everything that they've always done to suit the others that are from other cultures who have done other things. You think particularly here of Jews and Gentiles, both coming together and trying to get together for the first time in history. <clears throat> and so it's not surprising the apostle would tell us how to deal with some of these things. So this verse, one person esteeming one day above another and another esteeming every day alike, then he says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Motive is important to God. Why are you doing it? To whom are you doing it? To yourself, to your neighbor, or to God? And so he brings out the fact that whatever we do, we do to the Lord if we're Christians. So we can't do that without being fully convinced in our own minds that what we're doing is correct. Even though our brother, and we have to understand this, we're not all convinced about the same things the same way. When it comes to these things indifferent. And so this is sort of a summation. This verse sums up all that's been said so far. We began by pointing out the two guiding principles of the passage, which I'll reiterate quickly this morning. And there was also two levels of Christian maturity spoken of, and maturity with regard to understanding uh, the things of God. So recall, the first principle is that our faith contains certain essential beliefs, apart from which no one could call himself a Christian, and he certainly couldn't be accepted by the church unless he had held on to these certain beliefs that have to do with God and Jesus Christ and our salvation, justification by faith, those kinds of things, essential things, the deity of Christ. Those are not non-essential. Those are essential things. And they're indispensable to our faith. But having come to those conclusions, the brotherhood exists. But there are still these other things Paul refers to as things indifferent. And God, it seems, is is happy to let us work these out for ourselves, being convinced in our own minds, he said. The very statement implies that we're not all convinced the same way about the same things, doesn't it? Um, and so the first principle has to do with these things indifferent. And that is, he's talking about beliefs and convictions and traditions and practices that are not essential to salvation nor to our progressive sanctification. I could name some of them this morning. I can think of trends in music. You know, you can go to other countries where um, they use strange instruments in worshiping God. You know, I've seen uh, certain cultures that only have percussion instruments. And they're very interesting to listen to. And then there are 
certain groups of people who think percussion's bad for worshiping God, shouldn't have a drum set, shouldn't have these things. Well, that's fine. Be convinced in your own mind. But these are things indifferent. We don't separate as brothers in Christ over these essentially minor issues. And those, it seems to me, are particularly minor. All right, so there's beliefs, convictions, traditions, practices that are not essential to salvation. And here's another point. They're not essential to progressive sanctification. We don't have to all agree and do the same things in order to call ourselves grown-up Christians. Secondly, we should see that such things are personal and individual. God recognizes individuality to some extent. We're, by, we're, we're primarily a corporate union. We're a community of believers. In fact, we are the communion, you see. But we're each, each little individual snowflakes within the union. Um, And so these are things indifferent. They're personal, they're individual. They are arrived at due to particular concerns that are not put forth in the written word. Hey, if all these things were written down, we wouldn't have to have this chapter. We could just refer to it and say, no, see, you're not up to date on the scriptures here. It says right here you shouldn't be doing that, so don't do it. But these things are things indifferent. They're not told in the word of God. They're not unraveled for us, not in every particular at least, all right? But they're rather deduced from one's personal level of understanding by the greater body of the, of the written word. They're therefore not things that should be condemned by other brethren, neither should they be things that cause division in the church. And I think we know all down through history, small things have caused division in the church. Baptist churches, so I've heard, have split up over the color of the carpet, um, the time of the service, the uh, paint on the walls, whether or not to build an... You know, we, we think of all these things. We don't have to agree on this to be good Christians and to remain loving one to the other. So the first principle is that our faith contains things indifferent, And two, the second thing is things indifferent should not invite judgment and they should not cause division. That's clearly the teaching of Romans 14. A second concern is that there are two levels of spiritual maturity or understanding in a given body of believers. There are those who are comfortable with the blood-bought liberties gained in Christ. They celebrate the liberties. And there are those who hold back and they're wary of liberties. I think particularly of the Jews in this case because they were so corralled in by the law in particular things. So there are those who are comfortable with their blood-bought liberties gained in Christ, and they may be things that are contrary to the Mosaic law or the law of Moses, right? But they're conscientiously approved by certain believers who rightly hold to the belief that the ceremonial laws are fulfilled in Christ and no longer binding. Such people are said to be strong. The examples given elsewhere of those who eat meats offered to idols. From 1 Corinthians, we read this. Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worst. It's talking about food offered to idols. I talked about this last week. The uh, 
various temples to the various gods in the various ancient cities of Rome and ancient Greece um, prepared meat. They were marketplaces on the outside. They prepared meat. And Christians who could afford it, because they were the best meats, would go to these places and buy the meat and eat the meat. But there were others who would say, well, you can't do that because it's been offered to an idol and you're a Christian, right? And you don't want to be affected by that meat offered to the idol. But those who are strong know the idol's not real. Therefore, the effect upon the meat is also not real. And so we're considering in this chapter those cultural practices that are morally neutral before God and left to the discretion of the individual believer himself. Along with these, there are those whose former scruples about such things as food and feast days remain with them. Such things are still regarded by this group as guiding and protective against their indulgences. Some people aren't comfortable with exercising new liberties. These are said to be the weaker brethren, eats only vegetables, Paul said, because they're fearful of eating the thing offered to idols. Now, I, I'm, I'm purposely evading the example of Daniel in the Bible, but I think I'll go there and explain something to us. First of all, Daniel was under the law. Christ had not come, all right? Now, I've heard people who are vegetarians say, see, Daniel ate vegetables only and had better health than the rest of us, right? Daniel did that. He ate only vegetables, not because he was a vegetarian, not because he was afraid that killing animals was mean or that meat's bad for you. He ate only vegetables because he was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and there was simply no way to prepare kosher food properly before the Lord. Now, most of us would have said, oh, well, if God's going to command it, he has to provide it, and he didn't, so we'll just eat the meat anyway. But Daniel said, no, he took it one step further. He said, rather than default, because I can't eat meat properly prepared before God, I will not eat meat at all. And it was commendable. But if the others, I know, maybe Shadrach ate the meat of uh, Babylon, we're not told, right? But I want you to know, it wasn't because of his conviction that vegetables are better for you than than meat. You know, isn't there a, um, a vegetarian society over here in Long Island? It's called Daniel chapter 1. What did I say? Long Island. I meant Rhode Island. Yeah. Daniel chapter 1. I I assume, I don't really know what they're about, so maybe I shouldn't say, but I assumed it was that kind of a holistic uh, um, food and medicine store. But um, people wrongly believed that Daniel was opposed to eating meat, but he wasn't. All right? So the weaker brethren designation refers to their overly careful approach to spiritual life. The apostle writes, For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, it's important to note that the weakness referred to here is not a weakness of character. It's not a physical weakness. He's not saying you're not strong because you don't eat enough protein. He's not concerned with all these things that we talk about today in our diet-conscious world where just about everything's bad for you now, I'm pretty sure you shouldn't be eating at all. I've come to the conclusion. But it's not a weakness of faith in them. In fact, in a sense, it's a strength. It's not weakness in that it reflects 
a yet unaddressed inward sin. It is merely a developmental stage. We may presume that it's a good thing, in fact, for a new believer to be careful in the things that he approves. You wouldn't want a new believer to come in and just jump in and and take all sorts of liberties that he hasn't really looked at because what? He has to be convinced in his own mind in order for them not to be sin. He has to think them through in the light of God's word. So those are fine convictions. To be careful about the liberties you take are fine and acceptable convictions. The sin comes in when the weaker brother allows himself to believe that his restrictions make him stronger and he pleads for his convictions to become the universal convictions of all the churches of God. In other words, I have this strong conviction, it makes me a better Christian, and your lack of this conviction makes you a weak and sad Christian, and he judges you on that basis. Now you've taken it to a sinful level. You were fine as long as you had it to yourself, you see. So in other words, he's not sinning. The weaker brother's not sinning in in not partaking in certain uh, liberties. He's not sinning until he turns his carefulness into judgment. You see, there's the line. There's the doctrine of application here. Have your conviction and have it to yourself, and you'll be blessed for it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have discussions about these. It's like, why, don't, why do you eat only vegetables? It doesn't mean you can't talk about it, but it does mean that you can't bring the conversation to the point where you despise your brother for disagreeing with your conviction. It's a thing indifferent. If Christ didn't reject you, how could I? How could you? So the warning for the weaker in this passage, let's call him the careful brother, is not to judge him who's bolder and unafraid to enjoy his new liberties in Christ. The warning for the stronger brother is to take care that his liberty does not become his entire witness. Look at me and my liberties. And so we read elsewhere, but beware, this is from 1 Corinthians, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Friends, blood-bought liberties the liberties that released us from the yoke of the law are there to be enjoyed. Enjoyment, however, must not turn into a flaunting. It's not to be paraded, for love does not parade itself, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, right? Our liberties should not be taken, should not be partaken of with a body sense of entitlement and certainly with an air of overindulgence. Self-control still remains the fruit of the Spirit. I have said to people before, I've said it like this, and I hope this comes across in the way it's intended, but abstinence is never said to be the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, right? You know, there's a lot of things we can partake of, but if we don't do it moderately, we fall into sin, right? You can eat, but you can't eat too much. You can drink, but you can't drink too much. You can speak, but you can't say evil and wrong things, right? You can have sexual intimacy, but only with your wife. You know, all these things in and of themselves are good so long as they're taken with moderation and self-control, which is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Again, from 1 Corinthians, we read, 
If anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple... Now, notice that he's not condemning eating in the idol's temple. Now, I would have almost thought he would have, but he's not. He's saying, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? The explanation begs the question that is the subject of today's sermon, all right? And that is, if eating meat offered to idols, purchased in a temple of the idol, is acceptable to some, why is it not acceptable to all? That's the question. The answer is given in verse 5 of today's text. It is unacceptable to those who are not fully convinced in their own minds that the practice in and of itself is acceptable to God. How could you ask God to accept you in something that you're not really accepting yourself in? It's a mark of unfaithfulness. The essential component of everything, uh, or rather the the importance of personal conscience in all that we approve ourselves to do is an essential component in everything we approve of. Conscience matters. And the concise statement of this principle is given to us in the last verse of this chapter, which says this, He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. It's like you go before the Lord, Lord, I want to confess this thing that I'm doing, but I'm not sure it's a sin, so I won't confess it, but I will continue to do it. (laughs) You're self-condemning in that. And I don't mean condemning you're going to hell. I mean you're condemning in the moment. For a man to eat meat or drink wine, verse 21 of, uh, uh, of chapter 14, for a man to eat meat or drink wine while yet doubting his righteousness, doubting the righteousness of the act is taking a chance with God that, believe, that believers ought not dare to take. All right, that's my words, not that's my explanation of what Paul's saying in other verses, all right? We may not say to ourselves, I'm not sure if I should be doing such a thing, but I'll do it anyway. The Christian has to be a thinking man. The believer may not simply throw caution to the wind where righteousness is concerned. See, that's where the example of Daniel's very good, isn't it? He thought it through. And he said, I can't eat meat in the proper way. I can't find the proper meat, in fact, because Babylonians ate things that Jews would never eat, right? But I can't get into trouble eating vegetables, so God blesses the vegetables, and they had, what he said, shiny faces, and he even said they were fat. You can, you can get overweight, I guess, just eating vegetables. But um, it seems from today's teaching, and by the way, fat in those days was a sign of health. <laughs> Today, we've done something else with it. But um, It seems from today's teaching and from 1 Corinthians that motive is as important as the act itself. Luther said very famously, for a man to ignore conscience is neither right nor safe, right? Motive is important because if we cannot conscientiously approve of ourselves, how may we expect to be approved of God? It is as if we do the thing we think might be bad and put the approval of God at risk. So Paul says, let him be fully convinced in his own mind. Why? 
because whatever we do, we have to give thanks for it. How are you going to give thanks for something you're not even sure is from God? Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whether we abstain, we who are spiritual do all things as to the Lord. So how do we give thanks for the thing we believe to be evil? Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. The vegetable eater, the meat eater, both give God thanks for what they have. They're both doing it as to the Lord. Now, I didn't want to get into the other aspect of this is, um, is people could just be disingenuous and opinionated and not really know what's acceptable to the Lord in their own minds. But I'll leave that for another session. Suffice it to say that the Lord is involved in every aspect of our lives. Christianity should overtake us in the totality of our life's experiences. All that we do, we do to the Lord. So whatever we do, we do to the Lord and are thankful for the privilege. Each one must be able to conscientiously give thanks to God for what is thanks if we're not certain in our own minds that the thing we're thankful for is not approved by God. So we may read ahead to the verse that says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In other words, Paul's giving you the credo of the stronger brother. He's saying there really is nothing unclean in and of itself. I'm going to talk about this a bit more as we get, get uh, later in, uh, in this message. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. That's why Karen put the vision of the great sheet with Peter on the front. What God has cleansed you must not call common. So, you, as you can see, doctrine's dangerous. There's a danger in doctrine. Um, and this truth is no exception. The believer is required to be a thoughtful person. We're not just people that just do things. That's what we used to do. We just do things. That looks like fun. We're not allowed to do that anymore. We have to think it through. We can have great fun. We have, uh, we have great liberties in Christ. But we really should know that what we're doing pleases God. He may not simply do things because other people do them. The Christian may not become the slave of fashion. Fashion is fickle. Righteousness is immutable, meaning it doesn't change. Fashions change. Righteousness doesn't. Righteousness stays the same. We are a congregational people. We are a community of men and women and families. And so we're responsible for how we conduct ourselves with regard to our individual positions before God. And so in verse 12, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. You see, you have to be convinced in your own mind because you're going to go before God in the judgment, it says. And you're going to confess and you're going to bow the knee before him. And you're going to have to give account for the things that you do. 
verses 7 and 8, explains why. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. We're a congregational people. We're a communal people. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And so the apostle nails down the doctrine of personal conscience with regard to self and personal responsibility with regard to other believers. It's good to partake of the things that God has cleansed. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a blessed thing. I think we ought to revel in the liberties God's given us. If I was a Jew in that time, I would revel that I didn't have that hundreds or even thousands of little minute things to care about that I thought were cleansing me and weren't. For as the Lord said to Peter in the vision of the great sheet, what God has cleansed you must not call common, kill and eat, he said. In other words, if a liberty is blessed of God, it may not be judged by man. So, did anyone see Jonathan in the newspaper this week? No one saw Jonathan in the local newspaper? You guys got to get out more. Read the newspaper. No, Jonathan was standing before. I, he walked out with the baby. This was kind of meant to uh, speak to him. But I, I'm flicking through the, the local newspaper. It's like six pages or eight pages. You know, these little newspapers the towns have. And there's Jonathan talking to the... Uh, to the um, select board of, uh, of Middleborough, you see they had, they had uh, just wantonly, I guess, closed down hunting on certain um, conservation-owned um, land where they'd always had hunting before. There's a lot of hunting in Middleborough. Middleborough's very big. There's a lot of woods, and people hunt, right? And they just closed it down, and the people didn't like that, and they called a meeting, and they got together. And by the way, the people voiced their their views, and they, and they rescinded the order. So the people won the day. And um, the selectmen, I don't know if it was selectmen or um, w- what department they were, but the, the, the woman that spoke up in the article that I read repented of her view and said, we weren't doing it because we don't want hunting. We were doing it for other reasons. We don't have a, uh, a clear set of laws that comport with the state laws on these areas. You know, it was that kind of confused thing. And they showed Jonathan just standing there. And t- the minute I opened the paper, I went, that's Jonathan. And um, so I said it. I was in the, I was in the uh, hardware store where everything happens in my life. And so I'm in the hardware store. And a friend of mine there, uh, I said, oh, this is my friend from church. He's talking about hunting. But that wasn't what she wanted to hear about. She wanted to hear about hunting, anti-hunting, anti-hurting innocent animals. You know what I mean? So she knows I'm a pastor and a believer, and pastors and believers are supposed to be nice people. We wouldn't hurt a innocent animal. Christians would never do that, right? The other day, I saw one of our men catch a spider in the men's room, and he's walking it out, and he's putting it outside. And I said, and I said uh, have you been talking to Lynn Fredette? Because Lynn, Lynn won't let me kill a spider. It was Al. Al's bringing the spider out. That's good. Thank you. Because Lynn may not like the fact that there's a squash spider in there. Um, me, I just, every spider I see, he's done. Uh, he's in the wrong place. You shouldn't have come in. 
But what I said to her when she brought that up, I said, you know, I'm guided by the word of God in my beliefs. And I go back to Genesis, and, and God said to, uh, to Adam, everything shall be food to you. And then he said to Peter, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. Kill and eat. In the parable of the, uh, of the lost son, they celebrated by killing an innocent little calf, the fatted calf. He just sits in a stall and gets fat so you can eat him. These things are for the service of man. And so I got to explain that it wasn't evil and Christians were not doing the wrong thing. Um, but those ideas are out there, you see. And thanks to Jonathan, I got to witness uh, to a person about that. But motive is important. I don't eat the thing to, to hurt the animal, <laughs> right? Motive is important because if we cannot conscientiously approve of ourselves, how may we expect to be approved of God? We do everything we do, we do to the Lord. And the Lord's involved in every aspect of our lives. As I said, there's, there's great danger in doctrine. You can always take it to a place. There's a great danger in liberties. You can always take them to a place of sin. You can always take your liberty in Christ to a, to a place of antinomianism where there is no law. Right? And that's going too far with it. So... None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And so Paul nails down this point. If a liberty is blessed of God, it may not be judged by man. I find people so often trying to be holier than God. And you run into trouble with these kinds of things. So we may draw from these directives two more principles. There are two things that are sinful before God. The first, we may not act against our own conscience. And the second, we may not judge another person in the things he settled in his conscience. So long as they're things indifferent. The stronger may not turn personal liberty into a communal sin. And the weaker may not turn personal abstinence into a communal sin requirement, excuse me. The third principle must then become that if a person's indulgence is done to the Lord, that is, he's able to give God thanks, then it's wrong to judge him in what he does. He's doing it to the Lord. It's a thing in difference. The Lord has made no ruling on the rightness or wrongness of this thing, and your brother is enjoying it and thanking God for it. It's therefore right. Verses 10 and 11, why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What he's saying here is, why do you judge your brother, weaker one? Why do you show contempt for your brother, stronger one? I'll tell you why such things happen in the churches of God. It's because of false beliefs that we carried over into our new position of of Christ. Generally speaking, that's why. It's because um, of false beliefs that we formally believed about certain things. The practice has a name. It's called superstition. Have you heard of it? All right. I'm going to give you a definition of superstition that I think will help you deal with all these things. They have helped me. 
So here's the definition. Are you ready? A widely held but unjustified belief in supernatural causation leading to certain consequences of an action or event or a practice based on such a belief. Okay? Actually, I can really simplify that. For the Christian, the definition of superstition is much simpler. Superstition is the belief that sin resides in anything other than the human heart. Things are not sins. They're just things. Hence the trouble with meat offered to idols. We, we grew up thinking the idol is a thing. But the man who's grown in Christ and in his doctrine knows it's not a thing at all. And Paul, will give, Paul gives us this teaching. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Why? Because you're putting your sin on the thing. It has no power of right or wrong. It's morally neutral. Food, however it's prepared, is morally neutral. Unless you've poisoned it and are trying to kill somebody with it. Now there's a twin verse to this from 1 Corinthians which says this. It's actually three verses. Concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing. And that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. And Paul goes on to add this teaching. He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. All right? But now everyone here has that knowledge because I told you nothing is evil except for you and me. Not everyone has that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, there's people in there who know are not superstitious, they know the idol's nothing, and they're enjoying the good temple meat offered to the idol, and there are other people over here doing the same thing, and to them it's sin, and to them it's not. Because they still think it was offered to the idol as a god. Doctrine matters, friends. In everything we do, the doctrine matters. The antidote to the debilitating fears that are, that are the result of residual superstitions in the Christian heart is this verse from Paul. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. We make it dirty, friends. Sinners make neutral things sinful. Period. There's nothing unclean. There's nothing intrinsically evil but the heart of man. That's acceptable, right? I mean, you can, we can readily see that now that it's just stated plainly. Friends, creation fell in the fall, but it was the victim of the fall. We've seen from chapter 8, even the natural order awaits the revealing of the sons of God. Remember we saw from chapter 8? The creation groans together, awaiting the sons of God. Um, 
Man and his sin was the agent of the fall. It could not have fallen of itself. It didn't have the power. There's no inherent power in any but the human creature to affect such an eventful moment in history. But creation is a victim, not a principle in the act of sin. We brought creation down with us. Creation can't sin. It has no moral prerogatives. Neither animals nor trees nor oceans are sinful, friends. Food and drink and feast days are not sinful. Guns and tobacco and alcohol and drugs may be accomplices in human acts of sin, but they are not because they cannot instigate evil in the world. And I think it's time for the, for the believer to put guilt and responsibility in their proper places, which is in the breast and heart and mind of sinful man and no other place. The idol, the statue in the temple, is not evil. It can't hurt you. Never believe in that kinds of things. It may be the work of evil, of evil men, but it's also the work of falsehood. It's false because the deity to whom it's devoted doesn't exist. But if you worship the altar of idols, you invest the idol with your power. It's really a psychological thing going on here, isn't it? Even that power emanates from you and not from the idol. And such is the reality where food and drink and feast days are concerned. If they're partaken of as to the Lord with thanksgiving, thanksgiving, then they are clean to you and me. If they are done in doubt and fear of dread, then they condemn you. So with regard to things indifferent, it is the man who invests the thing with any power which he believes it to have. It then has the power to bless or condemn. Friends, even Satan in the Garden of Eden, if you're careful in your understanding, he had no power. He could only tempt you to use your power. He couldn't affect the fall without suggesting to Eve that things were not as they really were and convincing her. So you see, if we knew our doctrine better, we wouldn't have had a fall. It was she and Adam who had to invest power in the suggestions of Satan. It was as if they chose for themselves another God, and that's precisely how God looks at it. The one you obey is your God, friends. Jesus said as much in this, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Very simply stated. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus frees us from the slavery of sin. The sons of God have been made free from sin, so don't bring it back onto ourselves superstitiously. We are not supposed to be a bundle of fears and dreads about all the things around. We're no longer slave to it. Therefore, it's futile for us to seek new things to enslave us. And so we ought to become strong in this belief. As Paul said, again, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus, there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him 
it is unclean. Um, I have a few verses here from Colossians that I think we'll take um, all together. Uh, follow along with me. Paul wrote to the Colossian church, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and deceit. According to what? The traditions of men. According to what? The basic principles of the world. And not according to what? To Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. That's his conclusion. That's the application to thinking right about good and evil when you're in Christ. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance of Christ, he's heading off a works theology theology religion here, you see. He's heading it off. He's a little stronger here than he is in Romans. He sees the works theology coming in. It's like Galatians, who has bewitched you? You were made free by grace and now you're back to works? Will the works commend you to God? Of course not. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using. In other words, don't make superstitious rules for yourself and think you're pleasing God, when all the while you're just judging your neighbors who already understand this. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. You know, we see somebody going through, I don't know, things that other denominations do, the Stations of the Cross, maybe they're they're going up the Scala Sancta in Rome on their knees, reciting a rosary, even though God said, don't give me repetitive prayers. I don't like it, it's hypocritical. And they're doing all these things. And what do we do when we look at them? So religious. And they are. But they're not honoring this God, the God who wrote these things, They have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. How many people think neglect of the body is making them more holy? They are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Friends, when you're doing something, say, for health reasons or whatever reason, or to show yourself sacrificial, You're deluding yourself into thinking that what Christ already did for you wasn't enough. You have to do this other thing. And that's what Paul's heading heading off in these teachings. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Friends, not everyone is ready for the teaching I just gave you. 
But this is how you become a stronger brother from the weak. We're not supposed to remain weak. I went over that last week. It seems to me that this is the nature of spiritual growth, to begin with restrictions that seem good to us. Friends, I did a lot of things before I came into the body of Christ that I had to put away, and I couldn't say in my mind, well, I'll just do them less, right? I had to say, no, i got to put away these things. It was, you know, excessive drinking and taking drugs. And I always say I learned to take drugs in high school and honed it to a fine art when I get to college where kids could afford stuff. And then there's promiscuity. There's all these things, you know, 60s and 70s, love the one you're with mentality, right? It's still around, only it's way worse today. But I couldn't say, you know, I'll just, I'll just do less of those things. You have to put them away for a time. It's not wrong. It's right. It seems to me it's the nature of spiritual growth to begin with restrictions that are good for us. It's safe and prudent to begin with care and restraint. But as time goes on, as we learn that the power of the resurrection resides within us, that all the little cautions we put in our way only serve to enslave us again. Now, having said that, having noted that things many people regard as harmful need not be seen as harmful of themselves, but only harmful in the use of them. Friends, I'm not urging anyone to take liberties with regard to such things if they know of themselves that it's their own tendency to overindulge in those things. We don't want to do that. But the thing can't get you. Its presence cannot harm you. The liquor in the bottle has no power over you. You know, I've had people say, this is going to come across hard, maybe harsh, but it's doctrinally correct. Someone said to me, Christians should not partake of wine or any alcoholic beverages. Why? Because it destroyed my family. What's the answer? No, it didn't. It has no power to destroy You destroyed your family. You used alcohol to do it. Friends, it's not evil, and it's not powerful. It's powerless. And there's a tempter telling you the opposite. It has power over you. It doesn't. You're free of it. If you're destroyed as a result of overindulgence in something, it's your sin that did it, not the power of the thing. You know, we love to say today, everything's a disease. I heard the other day that... Obesity is a disease. I'm not ready to go with that. They tell me alcohol is a disease. Alcoholism, no, it's not. It's a matter of will. It's just that when we don't have a strong will, we don't want to hurt that person by saying, you did this to yourself. But friends, if you want someone to be healed from a disease, you've got to properly diagnose the disease. And that's what we're doing here today. These things have no power over the people of God. You are their master. It's simply a matter of the order of doctrine that I'm putting forth today. The liquor in the bottle has no power over you. You may take it or not take it. The gun in the nightstand has no power over you, yet it's still best to keep it hidden from plain sight from other people. There are prudent measures, right? The pill in the bottle has no power over you. It seems like it does. I know it. Believe me, I know from experience it seems like it does. But it doesn't. 
it's not that a willpower is not strong enough. It's you will not do, you will not exercise the amount of willpower it takes. But you do have it in you to do it. I've done it. Many people have done it. It's still, the pill in the bottle has no power over you. Friends, the statue of Satan at the Iowa Capitol, you heard about this? Is the statue of Satan in the rotunda at the state capitol of Iowa. And a guy came in and I guess he decapitated the thing, which gives me such joy, right? But that statue couldn't hurt me or you or them unless they think that, it, that the statue they made brings the power of Satan, which of course it doesn't. That's called superstition. We are free from that. Do not get in bondage to these things. There's too many of them out to get us. Personally, I'm glad the man beheaded the statue. The state has no business in respecting an establishment of religion. But please know, the statues don't have any power unless you give them power. If you bow down before it. And for that matter, neither does the devil have power over the believer. Any power that he has must be granted him. Power resides in the invitation. Power departs with the resistance. That's why James could write, resist the devil and he will flee. That's within you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. There's the power. It's in you. Greater is he that is in me and you than he that is in the world. And all these things that people want to give power to. Friends, we're going to get into this because if you notice, I skipped verse 9. Verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. I want to show you, friends, so graphically. Um, I won't be preaching next week, Danny Cross will, but perhaps the week after. I want to show you graphically that we are the master of death. Even though our bodies will die, it can have no power over us. And the Bible is replete with, those, with that teaching. Jesus overcame death for all of us. So to keep your own power when you abstain from a thing that you or rather, keep your own power when you abstain from a thing that you distrust. Perhaps at a thing that's demonstrated its power in former indulgences. Don't just say, well, Dan told me he doesn't have a, any power over me, so I'm going to go um, just start drinking. I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't think it can't do anything to you unless you partake of it. But you lose your strength of your conviction when you insist that the use of it has power over others simply because you have bowed to its lore. That's what happened with Jesus. Jesus ate and drank with sinners. So what did they say? They said he was a drunk and a glutton, which of course was not true, right? So Paul gives us this expedient measure. Friends, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Remember that part of it. He said, all things are lawful for me, but what? I will not be brought under the power of any. Right? Even though liberty is in power, indulgence may amount to weakness. 
So be wise in the liberties that are available to you. There are many things that are lawful, but not expedient. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Father, help us by the presence of your spirit to unravel the intricacies of this wonderful, freeing, liberating application of the word of God, O Lord, and let the church be stronger for it in our personal relationships and in the things in which we approve and disapprove. I ask a special measure of grace upon the body of Christ in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.